Bradford from Tuna Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio played baseball professionally for nine seasons, and two of those served as a first baseman for the Oakland A's. He was also Fangraphs writer-in-resident for the month of August. It's Nate Fryman. Nate Fryman is the guest on this edition of the program. And what it follows, Fryman recounts not only moments of interest from his career as a ball player, but also discusses some work in his new capacity as a baseball analyst. Of note in what follows, how and why and how meeting baseball analyst Max Markey and acquiring Markey's signature was so meaningful for a former major leaguer. The experience not merely of playing in, but also getting traded while a member of a Mexican League team. And of course, in what follows, some discussion of the posts published by Fryman during his residency at Fangraphs, including some great work on the strike zones of tall ball players, and also some nice objective work on advanced scouting. Also have some interest in what falls, a brief anecdote about catching Rich Hill, another Boston area native, uh, when both Fryman and Hill were high schoolers. They said, hey, Nate, he's got a good curveball. And I'm like, okay, sure. He threw one and my glove went up and the ball went down. And I got, I got no part of my glove on it. That embarrassing episode and others like it in what follows. Before we get to that conversation, however, it is both my privilege and also my professional obligation to announce that Fangraphs memberships exist for a reasonable sum. Readers of Fangraphs.com can support the great work that appears in the electronic pages of that site. And for a slightly less reasonable sum, not unreasonable, but slightly less reasonable, those same readers can acquire what is known as an ad-free membership, which allows them to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, not only facilitating faster loading speeds, but also liberating one from the tyranny and distortive effects of advertising. Fangrass membership and ad-free membership available by going to Fangrass.com, only by going to Fangrass.com and clicking around, clicking around until one finds the uh, the most the relevant page. That's how you do it. Okay. Uh, uh, with that advertisement now complete, let us move on to our conversation. What is it? It is Fangrass Audio. Who does it feature? Fangrass resident for the month of August, Nate Fryman. And when does it begin? Right now. Yeah, <laughs> this is Carson Sestouli. Yeah, you, you came through as unknown, so. Uh, no, I'm. Go- I know you should be cautious. Been, been yeah, you should be cautious. You don't yeah, know. I, I, I'm, I was relieved that it was you. <laughs> Do you have some debts to settle, Nate Fryman? <laughs> we can we can speculate. Yeah. So freely on that, I, I can't say for sure that I don't. No, I know. Yeah, that's it. Actually, one time. Uh, I attended for uh, – <laughs> this is the work recording, by the way. So so you are – everything <laughs> can and will be held against you at this point. Yeah, it's, it's fair. When I went to a short time to a brand name college in New York City, and uh, then I stopped going to that college uh, because it was um, burdensome on my spirit. Uh, but <laughs> – um, and then I, I went to some other place and that was fine. But I would get calls. This this college happened to be, uh, even though I had some financial aid, it happened to be quite expensive. And I would get calls uh, from debt collectors. And they really, not only, A, are they good at tracking you down, but what they do is they uh, perform, at least this is 15 years ago or whatever, they perform psychological karate on you. And oh. they'd be like, they would be like, don't you think you owe Columbia this money? And I oh, didn't gosh. feel I didn't feel the same way. I was like, no, because I'm poor, and they're they're doing well. They're doing fine. 
would Colombia be in, in jeopardized jeopardize their their future if if they didn't recover that money from you personally? <laughs> Give these assets, yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was touch or go. It was touch. It was touch and go. It was touch and go. What a pleasure to speak with you, Nate Fryman. What a pleasure. First of all, great job with the residency. Really interesting stuff. I'm really impressed with uh, all of your database work and your uh, your work with R. And uh, that dovetails nicely with your experience as a professional ball player. That's all I wanted to say. Well, thank you for having me, Carson. It's been it's been quite a pleasure working with you and with Meg. Some people with some real professional editing experience. I've actually learned a lot from from working with you guys. And I think that my own writing experience is is rather limited. And this has been a really good learning opportunity for me. Well, that comment is interesting for me because it it uh, only speaks even further towards a quality that you have exhibited that mystifies me a little bit. <laughs> and it's there are probably a lot more of them. Okay, all right. Well, we'll I'm, we'll... I'm sure I have a lot of maybe uh, at least I, I've heard that maybe mis- mystifying or at least <laughs> just not not making sense. But well, let me get to it. Uh, you note, I think in the first post you did. For the site, which was, I think, a um, it was is a, a version of something that you presented at Saber Seminar. It, it was a, a study of uh, the minor league strike zone, both through the levels and and I, at some level relative to the major league strike zone. And in it, you note with it seems like some pleasure that you got your book signed by Max Markey. It was it was more than some pleasure. It was quite a bit of pleasure. So you understand this short circuits a little bit. Um, the, the natural hierarchy of things uh, between people who I cu- either currently play or have played uh, Major League Baseball and the bespectacled uh, nerds whose job it is to analyze their performances. You really are challenging the order of things, of the whole world, really, by being so excited to meet Max Markey. Well, it's, it's not out of the question that the order deserves challenging, but... Maybe the, those thoughts aside, I, I've learned a lot from reading his book. I, I'm done playing and presumably have a long career ahead of me in some regard. And the first step is, is learning and, and he's, he's clearly an expert in his field and has just done incredible things. So it was, it was really cool meeting him. Now, was that, was that your first time at, uh, at Saber Seminar then? Yes. Yes, I've always been I've always been playing, and in last last year's case, that was that was in Mexico, but other places in the U.S. And how would well. you uh, how would you sort of characterize the scene? I guess there there at Saber Seminar. I mean, uh, did it uh, match your expectations? I guess, or was it different than you anticipated? It was much more friendly mm-hmm. than not that I expected to get there and have it be adversarial and, and unfriendly and people just openly hostile towards each other. But everything was very friendly and low key. And collaborative, and and the people were genuinely interested in learning, myself included, and interested in talking. And people were were very approachable, and I had some great conversations with people from all kinds of different backgrounds. There, really, really fun experience. Yeah, that has been my sense too. And I think Dan Brooks, who does a lot of the uh, organizational work for that, uh, it does seem uh, he just seems to set the tone for that sort of thing. It is nice, and I'm not sure how many experiences you've you've had like this, but it is nice when you can get people in a group together in a spirit of collective inquiry uh there is something nice that but it's not it's not always very easy to facilitate that kind of event no i imagine i imagine it wouldn't be i i don't have much 
experience with collective inquiry, <laughs> but I, it sounds like it could be a competitive field. And I was, I was very pleasantly surprised at how, how open and, and collaborative this environment was. Yeah. I think that, I mean, obviously any, any field group of people, you know, there will be benefits to it and there, or, you know, there will be, they will have strengths and weaknesses, I guess. And certainly it seems in particular in this sort of fledgling days of sabermetrics, one of the, the real strengths was because it was truly an amateur endeavor and there was very little to be gained in terms of, uh, fame and or riches is that there really was a um, I think a, a sort of spirit of cooperation and it seems like that that spirit is uh, alive and well at the uh, at the Saber seminar uh, or it certainly was this year I'm sorry I, I wasn't there I was in Montreal because it happened to be it happened to be the weekend after uh, the uh, trade deadline it was the only time I could get away with oh that's that's right that's a that's a well-deserved vacation for People they need to stay up on all this stuff. It is, uh, yeah, that's a little bit stressful during that period of time. Did you, did you ever see? Did you ever have occasion to be worrying about things around a trade deadline? I was never a centerpiece mm-hmm. of a blockbuster trade <laughs> per se. <laughs> okay, yeah, but I was part of a couple trades that that might be sort of on the scrap heap of the transaction wire. <laughs> In let's see, twenty twenty sixteen. Yeah. I was I was sitting at a Panera in Orlando. Actually, it was on Easter Sunday, and I got a call from the, I, I had already been been sent down to minor league camp with the Braves, and I got the call that I was being traded to the Nationals. And, and there there are some trades that are that are clearly step ladders towards your career, and then there are others that maybe maybe aren't. And this didn't have a great feeling. I ended up getting released two weeks later, but it happens. And I was actually traded in the Mexican League too. You were traded to the Mexican League. I was I was traded within the Mexican League. Oh, within the Mexican League. That's right. So I was I was down there. I was in Monclova, which is which is this it's a steel factory town about two hours from Monterey. And I came up for a drug test. So there were no drug testing facilities in Monclova. So we we drove two hours to Monterey. We flew to Mexico this is all part of the trade story, by the way. Uh-huh. We yeah, okay. flew yeah, to, yeah, we yeah. flew to Mexico City. Uh-huh. So I, we flew all the way to Mexico City. I, we, we went to the airport to the to the facility. I, I submitted my my drug test sample at the facility, and then we proceeded to go right back to the airport and fly back to Monterey and drive two hours to Monclova. Mm-hmm. So the team that I was playing for, the the ownership group owns two teams, one in the north and one in the the south, which is Puebla. And Monclova is, for all intents and purposes, their A team. And so I started the year in Monclova. And a couple days after you're the Nate, drug you're Nate Fryman. Incident, I mean, you're Nate Fryman. You're, you're the A team. Well, sort of. <laughs> about three, about a week after this, I got a I got a text at about one in the morning from our from our GM saying he wanted to. We had to talk, which I, no no one AM text saying we have to talk and ends well. And did it start you up? Because that would have been distressing in particular. <laughs> that. Would, that that would have that would have been been strangely in line with maybe my my expectations for for this conversation. Okay. But I thought that either I failed the drug test, which I I had no explanation for. I, I couldn't for the life of me figure out why that would be, or I was being traded. And and sure enough, the the breakfast conversation was that I was being traded, which was tantamount to being sent down to to the B team after. 30 or 48 bats, which was probably in line with my performance, but ended up having a, a good, a good rest of the summer down there in Pueblo. So 
two trades, no blockbusters. Yeah. Was uh, so the Mexican League is is fascinating for me. I've actually had the pleasure yeah. of of attending a, um, a Diablos Rojos game. Okay, yeah, that's that's a fun place to play. Is it okay? So now, now when you were there, was that? Well, I guess it was pretty recently. Was so they they were not in the Foro Soul anymore. They were at the uh, um, whatever the new grounds is. But I have to I have to admit that um, among many of my other weaknesses, uh, one of them is. Well, first of all, I don't know Spanish at all. And uh, another weakness is I don't have a very good concept of Mexico. So my trip to Mexico City is all I can base it on. But I really don't understand the country as a whole. Do you have just between from one person to another, can you sort of characterize your experiences there? Like you mentioned, was it Mon, uh, Monclova was the other one and then Puebla? Right. Yeah. Mexican League, what was cool about is the league spans the entire country from, from Tijuana to Cancun. Just you get a really good, really good sense of the country. Now it's also sort of limited because the cities you go to are sort of, it's a little bit of a biased sample because you go to cities that have baseball teams. You're not going to small towns off the, the beaten path, mm-hmm. but I had a great experience there. I, I speak decent Spanish for somebody whose only Spanish was Spanish class. Mm-hmm. And I love Mexican food. The The team treated us really well. They, they treated most of us really well. We had this, we had this strange arrangement where half the team would fly and half the team would drive on the bus for, for a long road trip. So the, the people that played every day or had some sort of level of experience above a presumably arbitrary cutoff would, would fly. And then the rest of the team would, would go on a 20 hour overnight bus ride and meet the team at the airport, pick them up from their flight. So <laughs> that seems unnecessarily cruel and yet there's something it's something some there's something about it that is, that is very amusing yeah and i was i was sort of on the the good end of that deal I, again i don't know what i did to merit that kind of treatment but it, it it did seem rather hierarchical and you know unfortunate for half the team but i guess that's that's how it goes i mean it seems like it seems like one of those psychology experiments that would have been conducted like in the in the middle of the 20th century that's no longer able to be conducted it's like what, what oh happens? yeah like you can't shock each other anymore <laughs> yeah the mate was the the the, the uh, stanley the milgram experiment Mil- yeah yeah. The, yeah yeah right or the stanford experiment where, where, players, oh, right. where students become prisoners for <laughs> 48 hours it's just like arbitrarily selecting groups of people and say you the one you get to fly you have a nice flight uh, and then you other ones, you have to take, you have to take this this terrible bus. I mean, it could. I'm sure it was a nice, it was a fine enough bus. Did you now? Did you ever take the bus? I did take the bus. We we had certain road trips where where everybody took the bus. Actually, most of our bus trips were on the way to the airport. It was a, we were we flew out of Mexico City from Puebla, so the the bus would drive us two hours to the airport. Half the team would get off the bus. And then the the other half would would just drive to the to the other airport ten to fifteen hours away and, and pick up the team or no. some form of that. That timing doesn't work. Actually, now that I think about it, that timing doesn't work out. No, yeah, let's not write. Don't write it down. It's uh, well, I believe you. Was the but they would they would pick us up. They might have left the night before, and actually actually they would leave the night before. We would rent a bus to take to the airport because our team bus, which had a huge parrot on it would already be waiting for us in the city we were flying to. And so so the team bus was waiting, and those players who had been relegated to the bus were also waiting on it. 
That's right. They were they were waiting to pick us up at the airport, and I, I surprisingly little resentment was fostered by this. this I was going to ask. We, yeah. we had a <laughs> we had a good group of people that, and despite having the the lesser of the two teams on paper, we actually we actually went farther than the Moklova team. We went to the World Series only to lose to Tijuana. Hmm. Now I assumed that as a as a ball player, as a competitive athlete, that you always want to win. Is winning and losing different when you're doing it in, I guess, a sort of a, a climate of competition that's not entirely familiar to you? I mean, do you ever stop feeling like a tourist, essentially? I did. They did. did a great job integrating us into the team. And I think a lot of foreign leagues and I guess, actually the domestic leagues, too, there, there, there are certain incentives for advancing in the playoffs. And so that that had that had a nice effect of bringing us all together. <laughs> yeah, I guess it would. If you can make each other money, then that's not so bad. That's right. I have more questions to ask than than you ought to answer because you're a person who's doing things with his life, so that's fine. I wanted to start here though, in part because I feel like what's a topic in which about which I have genuine curiosity and which also a little bit of experience is that I I also went to high school in Massachusetts. Um, I think you went to high school. I think you went to Wellesley High School. Is that true? Oh yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, I went well. I went to a school uh, called Milton Academy, which was not far away from Wellesley. Oh, you um, went to Milton? Yeah. Or Milton Academy? Yeah, Milton Academy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, I believe actually Rich Hill, left-hander Rich Hill, was a pitcher at Milton High School while I was in Milton Academy. We didn't really he have. He was. Any. He was. Uh, that's right. He was Milton High School, and that's great. Were you from Milton? No, I'm from Concord, New Hampshire, originally. Okay. Um, but I I went there for a couple of reasons, um, mostly because it was the school that accepted me. Uh, but there's, oh. but it, I ended up liking it quite a bit. Um, and I played baseball That's a there. Pretty good reason. Yeah, I played baseball there badly, but you know I liked it. But I guess I guess one of my curiosities is this: to me, there is a sort of mystique, and I'm not sure how many other people share this opinion, but there's a certain mystique to the northern prep prospect, in particular prep prospect, but also college prospect too, I suppose. But northern prospects in general. Obviously, Florida, Texas, California, Georgia, a handful of other states are full of prep prospects. Scouting in the north is a, I guess probably sometimes a thankless position, or not always thankless, but it's, <laughs> it's a little bit more difficult, right? Talent tends to be a little bit more spread out, and the, the, the springs in New England are not conducive to baseball. But I guess I'm curious about both by, A, your experience as a, as a prospect from a northern state, and then be, you know, at this point in your in your life, reflecting back, if there's sort of anything you've learned about northern prospects. My understanding is that pitchers often come out of the northeast with with fewer, with less mileage on their arms, mm -hmm. which can be an attractive proposition for for a team. Probably less polished because you're not playing all year round. Teams, there's just so much travel ball now in high school and American Legion. Did, did you play Legion? I played Legion. I, I don't know if people play Legion anymore. Yeah, I, don't, I actually don't know if that exists. I, I would have played Legion where I came from. It gets a little bit weird because I, I okay. was at a boarding school. So oh, that's of, right. The sort of uh, timing was a little bit weird. I also wasn't that Understood. good either, too. So there's I just like to footnote that as well. <laughs> there's so much travel now. Uh, the North, they go down and play in the South, and you know they try to artificially you know, up people's innings and experience. And I think still the people coming out of the North aren't quite as polished. And I was certainly not as polished. And I was not a pro prospect coming out of high school. I wasn't drafted, but 
the chance to play in the ACC for four years as, as a senior sign, just that was where a lot of my development took place. And that was where I, you know, got the development to be able to hit uh, pro pitching and be able to enter on that ladder. But, but Northern guys are, are tough. I, I have such a special place in my heart from guys who come out of the Northeast. Cause unless you've played in the snow, or had to practice or go play long toss in the parking lot or the basketball court. It's, there's some, there's some hurdles to overcome up there. And I guess there are other cold places in the Northeast, but love seeing guys come out of there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, yeah, to, to speak to that, like I, you know, I remember even going back to little league, like our, a lot of times like our tryouts or, or, you know, our, our practices early in the season, like they were, they were held in, as you know, like in parking lots sometimes, cause it was the only place yeah. where you could like wipe off the snow. And for like the first month of, you know, for our spring sports, like we would be just doing like pitcher, like pitcher and catcher stuff inside in the gym, you know, Um, and unless you have a lot of resources available to you, you know, that's basically all you're you're going to be able to do. What was the, again, especially for a Northern prospect, what was, what was for you? What was the recruitment process like? How does that work? Because I'll be honest, that's something, well, it's it's not part of my experience previously as a ball player. Yeah, I got in sort of on the the beginning on the upswing of the modern recruiting process with that's just totally showcase and travel team based. I did go to some showcases. I was a big tall guy and I, I went as a pitcher. So I was throwing at these showcases, I, I don't know, like 86, 87. And you see a 17 year old kid who's, who's tall and coming out of the Northeast with, with no real good mechanics mm-hmm. throwing high eighties. It, it, you know, that, that's a, that's a pretty good project. That's, that's some, that's someone that maybe you could project out to when he's 20, 21 being a decent college pitcher. So I was actually recruited as a pitcher. Honestly, I just showed up the showcases in, in through hard and that opened a ton of doors for me. And it wasn't until I got to Duke and hurt my elbow that I became a first baseman, which, you know, at the time sucked, but probably a good thing to, good thing to happen and really be able to focus on, on being a hitter. Did, now, did you, did that happen pretty quickly? Cause the data indicates that. <laughs> Nate Fryman uh, <laughs> did pitch for Duke. Yep. He now you can you're the person to confirm or deny these allegations. No, these so far they're true. One game started. That's right. Uh, zero outs recorded. <laughs> <laughs> a hit and a walk, and uh, it looks like both those came around to score. Nate. Absolutely. I, I got the start my freshman year. We were. We were a team that was rebuilding, so there were opportunities for young guys to contribute, which is a nice way of saying that we were 15 and 40 that year. <laughs> so I got, I got, I got a start early in the year. It was cold and I faced two batters and then I hurt my elbow and I came out. My roommate came in and he, g- he gave up both my runs. <laughs> so I never pitched again. So my, my ERA is like 50, like 54, uh-huh, but I yeah. never, I never ended up, I never ended up pitching again. Uh huh. I just became a position player after that. I, I don't really miss pitching. I, it was more just because I was tall, and for a 17-year-old kid throwing mid to high 80s was just something that people felt like he should pitch. But I, they put me at first base, and I just I was fortunate to, to hit enough where I could stay there for, yeah. throughout college. Here's a question for you, and this is partially on it on the, uh, the sort of idea of the the northern player, and you're free to not answer it. Uh, Mike Trout, you're probably familiar, um, graduated from school, from high school in New Jersey, went 25th overall. If he had been from Florida, A, do you think he would have been selected higher? And B, 
you know, what his skills, I guess, have just been that much more obvious? Would he have gone first overall, for example? I actually remember watching that draft, and he was a really – he was obviously the first rounder. He was a big prospect, and I think the, the sense at the time is that he sort of fell. Mm-hmm. And I, I that never occurred to me that people were a little hesitant because he was from the Northeast and he hadn't maybe hadn't had the track record of playing against the Florida and Texas guys. But I think that's a great point. I think if he'd been a Florida, Texas, California guy, he he may have had maybe more more eyes on him and maybe would have gone higher. I think that's I think that's a totally reasonable point. Yeah. Well, yeah, it'd, I mean, it'd be interesting to see because I know that I've. Um, Kyle McDaniel and Eric Longenagin both do great work for us on the prospect side of things. And I've, I've had conversations with them before about, yeah, just the, it's, I mean, it's, it's risk, right? Like there's, there's always a certain amount of risk associated with those prospects who, who, you know, who you haven't been able to see as much, right? The, 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 the possibility for outcomes is a lot, um, the range is a lot wider. And if you're picking at the top of a draft, there's uh, there are obvious reasons to be risk averse because there are some known quantities who you know who will probably do just fine to speculate on possibility of a player who could be you know essentially the best of his generation maybe the best ever is one thing but if if you've only seen him take you know a few at bats on fields that you know had a, like a big puddle out behind the shortstop or something then less certainty it is fashionable to sort of criticize the league for letting them slip that low but i think that's a great point it it's really difficult to extrapolate performance against Northeast competition, especially when that's in the cold and a shortened season to really commit to a guy that high in the draft. I think that's, I think that's totally on point. I think that it might be a little bit easier to project a pitcher mm-hmm. coming out of the Northeast because pitching is, is something that you can take a little bit more in a vacuum, but hitting is, is relative to the pitching you're facing. And that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, well, I appreciate that, I guess. Hey, you also played in the independent, in the, in the Atlantic League. That's right. I did. I had two separate stints in the Atlantic League, which depending on how you, how you look at it, I was, I was fortunate that they were both rather short, but I had a great time there. Yeah. Tell me. Uh, so I'm also curious about that. This, this is also about something about which I have probably more romantic feelings than uh, maybe than is justified. Uh, but the, <laughs> But the very prospect of independent ball to me is, I think, sort of beautiful because uh, it's something apart from this sort of, you know, this kind of dominant force, which is which is Major League Baseball. But people people go to watch the games, people mm-hmm. play in the games, and it's not uh, entirely un- out of the ordinary for players to go from independent ball. I mean, like David Peralta, for example, has, you know, put together a pretty great Major League career after being selected out of independent ball. There are a number of relief pitchers who've worked in the independent leagues and, and um, maybe yeah. by virtue of a simple adjustment have uh, have worked their way to the majors. So there's always that, that potential there. What was uh, so what was the experience of, of that? And like I guess how does it differ from maybe the playing in the affiliated affiliated minors? The biggest difference between indie ball and affiliated ball is that it's not a vehicle for player development. You're showing up that night to win the game, and the team, the local administration, they they control the game, and they want to win. They want to put a good product on the field to market themselves and fill the seats. So it's not about getting certain prospects, certain number of at bats, and getting guys innings. They they win. They they bunt. They pinch run. They make pitching changes, which 
for me, it was really fun. No criticism of affiliated ball. Affiliated ball exists to develop players. But to get in there and just be in competitive games every night where you're trying to win for its own sake was really fun. It, it, it felt a lot like summer ball and even in some ways college ball. The Obviously, the people are, are hoping to get back to affiliated ball to, to get their careers on, on track to, to get back up to the league. The, the biggest, the most high, the higher profile success story that came out of Long Island is Rich Hill. He had been there a couple of years before I got there. And what he's done since being in Long Island has been, has been really fun to watch. But it was a real mixture of players. There were some, some young guys who never really got the shot in affiliated ball, you know, 22, 23 years old. There were like 35 year olds on the team. I mean, we had Todd Coffey and Nolan Reimolds and we had Baylon Lantini. We played center field for us. He, uh, he's the manager for the Sonoma Stompers in the book that, that Ben yeah. Lindsay wrote about yes, out there. Was, and yes. he, so he, he, he and I were, he and I were teammates, uh, two separate times in Long Island. He, I, I had a couple of pretty good conversations with him, uh, you know, cause I, I had read Ben's book uh-huh. and to, to be playing with, with, with Faye was, was pretty cool. Are you prepared to write, uh, Faye Lantini that what really happened? Is that, are you working on that, that text right now? <laughs> <laughs> the, the the tell all I I will say this and I, I I told I did say this to to Ben I I did get a slightly different version of the events mm-hmm. from Faye but you know it's 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 a difficult situation that you know Ben did really a great job writing about that it's it's a difficult situation to put a, a life for a baseball uh, guy in and you know I think I think ultimately they they both handled it you know best they could but he's he's a riot. He's a guy that is, he's 40 years old. He's, he was still out there stealing bases and, you know, diving for balls in the outfields. And so met, I met some real characters in any ball. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, I guess you would. I guess it's also like, I mean, one of the things I, I really enjoy about minor league ball or uh, I lived in Madison, Wisconsin for three years. And the Madison Mallards uh, the, the is in Northwoods. It's one of the collegiate wood bat leagues. Not quite as the same sort of profile as Cape Cod, but probably, mm. you know, approaching that but they would get like five or six thousand people a night which is huge and but anyways one of the great things about a lot a lot of the lower levels is you do see maybe in the way you're talking about with lentini you see an, a lot more ways of of getting results than you do at the major league level right where at the major league level more often than not physical talent is kind of necessary for success right I mean, Absolutely. There, yeah, there's, I mean, a, there's a certain physical threshold that you need to be at to be at that level. Absolutely. Right. But at some at, at the levels that are that are below that, there are, I guess, more ways to skin this that particular cat of success and finding finding the ways that have worked for some players and what what is successful for them is one real pleasure of, uh, you know, whether it's minor league ball or or, you know, collegiate collegiate leagues or, or whatever. Did you, ever, did you ever come across any any players who you know maybe it was clear that um, what what they were doing was not going to get them onto a major league roster, but they had somehow they had somehow found almost like a cheat code to at least success at whatever level they were playing? Actually, yes. Our shortstop, and I, I hope I'm wrong about this. Our shortstop in, in Long Island, Dan Lyons, mm-hmm. he's been playing in Long Island for several years. He he had some time in affiliated ball, but. He's been in Long Island for a while, and again, I hope he, he gets back to affiliated, but doesn't really seem, it seems like he hasn't gotten the opportunity. Is just a fantastic player. A guy that picks it up in the middle. He, he, he doesn't hit for a ton of power, but he makes contact. He has great at bats. 
just I think intuitively, you know what I mean when I say mm-hmm. he's just a good baseball player. And we see a lot of that in indie ball guys that really play the game well. And and maybe there aren't the the, the flashy tools that can stand out in in player development like guys maybe not a hundred miles an hour, but there's a lot of baseball IQ. There are a lot of people that really know how to play the game, and and that was fun to be around. You mentioned you mentioned Rich Hill. He's certainly a player whose uh, physicality does not jump out at you, and yet who has managed now to put together a few pretty good major league seasons, right? If if on yeah. a uh, maybe in some cases more on a rate basis than his counting numbers because largely because of blisters, he's had some trouble. What for you? I've obviously I mean there's obviously the combination of his uh, his fastball and his curveball. Fastballs typically at the top of the zone. You know, curveballs down below it. That's a pretty good combination. And he he also seems to throw like a few different curveballs, which creates difficulties for batters. Those are sort of the those are those are the you know the sort of observations at which one can arrive just from uh, sitting like I am right now in one's living room. Um, <laughs> but for you, for, uh, for someone who played the game at the highest level. I'm curious, like, what is it that allows Rich Hill, a player whose, again, whose physical talents are not overwhelming, what allows him ultimately to overwhelm, I mean, not just survive in the major leagues, but thrive? Normally, when we think of physical talents, we think of just straight up gas, just mm-hmm. below. Yeah, Rich Hill, he doesn't throw 100, but that curveball is a physical talent. It comes in sharp, and I, here's a story, actually, I, when I was about, about 17. I, so I've never batted against Rich Hill, but I've actually caught a, a bullpen of his. I, I did some catching in high school, and he was working out indoors up in up at BBNN. Oh yeah, sure. Which Bucking and Brian I guess Nichols, you, yeah. you, you yeah. know all about them. Mm-hmm. He was throwing a bullpen there, and I was I was catching bullpens in the gym, and sure enough, he just kind of showed up and started throwing some curveballs, and I just I just whiffed on them entirely. I mean, I was a <laughs> high school catcher, so. They said, hey, Nate, he's got a good curveball. And I'm like, okay, sure. He threw it, and my glove went up, and the ball went down. And I got I got no part of my glove on it. And so what he does is 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 a physical talent. And the fact that he can repeat it and throw it at different angles, I mean, that's that's real ability. And he, he, he works hard. He has worked really hard on that to, to develop that ability. But it's it's certainly special what he can do. Is it is it essentially I mean, is he, does the the curveball and the I guess the visual effect it creates does it essentially like short circuit like human cognition for for anyone who's like attempting to you know to hit it? That's actually a conversation I had at Saber Seminar with with a couple of the of the, the the truly brilliant people there about how your your brain picks up patterns that it it, it recognizes, mm-hmm. and when you see something you really aren't used to seeing, your brain just does it kind of short circuits and he just doesn't process it and i i think there's certainly something to that that his curveball can kind of short circuit your your recognition patterns there and just that split second when you see the ball go up and then it comes back or you see a ball come in straight and then it hits you in the foot but you, you still swung at it that's difficult because normally as hitters you you know you make decisions based on what you've seen before and if someone can really can throw something truly unique at you that that's that's difficult to adjust to did you ever swing at a pitch that then proceeded to hit you, Nate Fryman? Absolutely. <laughs> it's only happened a couple of times. So you hear you hear things like back foot breaking ball, back foot slider, and uh-huh. it, and that's a right on left matchup. You try to throw it down the end, so they swing over it, and I I, I have swung over 
a couple backfoot sliders that proceeded to hit me in the back foot. That has to be a humbling experience. Well, I, baseball in general is a humbling experience. Yeah, but yeah that, but that in particular, yes. That's a good point you, you make, um, and I, I've thought about this recently. Now, I think you have, uh, I think you have a little person in your house, isn't that right? That's true. We have we have two of them. Oh, two of them. That's that's twice as many as one. The uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. As editor of Fangraphs, I could tell you that's twice as many. I think I actually think it's a non-additive relationship, though. Oh, that's a good that point. It, yeah. It's it seems like it <laughs> seems like more than twice as many. My dad did tell me that one time. Uh, he said if you're gonna have, he says if you have two children, you might as well have a million because at a certain point, <laughs> it's yeah. just when they begin interacting with each other, it creates a level of chaos. Um, <laughs> that's, that's where we are, and, and it, it certainly is. We. We've cleaned Play-Doh out of places that I, you know, didn't think Play-Doh <laughs> could go. Certainly shouldn't. Certainly it, shouldn't go. It's nice. It's nice that we were able to to find this when presumably all all three of ours are are napping. Yes. Yeah. No. This is uh, right. This is a good time of day. Uh, I mean, I I love my son dearly, uh, but um, sometimes it's good when he's asleep. I I had uh, what I'm sure was a question that was going to unlock corridors of the mind, but uh, I get distracted by our conversation about children briefly. Um, so let's pretend yeah, that, that I unlock the, the corridors of the mind. Um, we'll get to that. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to hold you for much longer. I do want to ask you a couple things. Now, with your with your work that's appeared at the site, you've done again, as I said when we, when we first started, you've done some great work. You've you've produced posts which possess what I consider to be characteristic of the best posts that have appeared at the site previously, which is you've asked a question and you've answered it in a responsible way. That's kind of at the root of these sorts of things. And you've asked what's particularly good about it is you've asked questions that are relevant, were relevant to your experience as a ballplayer, which makes them, I think, uh, gives them a, a particular urgency um, because they're relevant to other ballplayers, presumably. Um, you looked at uh, strike zone by level. You looked at uh, strike zones for tall guys in particular. You looked at, um, in your third piece, you looked at uh, advanced scouting, which was fascinating, by the way, just the changes um, that have occurred in advanced scouting in, in a relatively short time since you were in the minor leagues. I think you were talking about the the coach you'd had who, you know, whose report on Dan Straley was like 60% fastballs, 30% sliders or something like that. Yeah, that, that was it. That was all we got. And then, you know, some some form of uh, like personally disparaging comment to part ways with. But that was that was pretty much the extent of the meeting. Now, he said that he's what, sorry. What was the coach's name again? It's, so his name is Tom Tornitasa. He, he's absolute legend in, in pro ball. One just knows the mechanics of the swing really well as has a has a gift mm-hmm. for for human interaction, I would say. And I, I really enjoyed playing for him. Was it hard to take? Uh, he said, "I think it, Dan Straley sucks." Dan, was um, and this is at a time when Dan Straley. <laughs> yeah, well, that was that was a maybe a that was a censored version of the the comment. I'm sure that we got. Yeah, well, fair enough. This was at a time when Dan Straley was leading the minor leagues in strikeouts. I think. Right. Right. Was it hard to believe him at that point? <laughs> on a on a visceral <laughs> level. Yeah, it was there. There was some sort of disconnect between what the what the data showed and what we were being told there, but. He 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 was he was nasty at that point. We were we were it would have been in Midlands, Texas that we were we were facing. He was he was nasty. Um, he actually just uh, a post that went up today at the site. He was talking about the creation of a slider, well, not necessarily the creation, but the first time he threw it and uh, how it mm. stuck. I think it was just a coach who told him. Um, I think it was this was like essentially throw it like your fastball, except 
really uh, essentially pull down with your middle finger, and that's how you do it. And uh, I think he threw one. It didn't even make it to the plate, but he got a swing and a miss. And then he did it again, and he got a swing and a miss, even though it didn't make it to the plate. And he was like, huh, it's a good pitch to have. It doesn't go in the yeah. strike zone, and everyone swings at it. Uh that sounds yeah. like in a bat that I might have had against him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we've seen a sampling of your work here. But my question is, I guess, has to do with your future. I know um, you mentioned that mm. you were, uh, towards the beginning of residency, you're starting business school now. So that seems to be part of your present, certainly. What's the kind of, what do, what do you, not the end game necessarily, but what do you, what's kind of your like ideal next step at this point? Yeah, right now it's about learning. Just whether that is about the, the analytics and the, the database and the modeling or Actually, writing itself, I had a just really fun time writing these pieces. But the business school goes for you know two school years, and mm-hmm. it's structured around a summer internship. And and where where are you doing business school? I'm at, at Duke. Oh, okay. So came here after undergrad. I think maybe they they were generous enough to let me back. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, for, good. You for grad school. You didn't burn any bridges while you were there? Not too many. At least not not the ones that not the ones that led to business school. Now, would would a place in uh, would a place in baseball appeal to you? Absolutely. Yeah. Right now, just trying to learn. But again, yeah, there's a summer internship over the the two school years, and I I hope to do that in some form or relationship to to baseball. Obviously, that well, a couple things. Obviously, there's there's more data in the game now than ever. Uh, coaches who have been long tenured have been. I'm not gonna say forced, but it's become sort of imperative for their job security to become acquainted with, with data and how to use it. And, and uh, of course, um, writers from Fangraphs, for example, have, have taken positions with clubs that you know maybe wouldn't have even existed 10 years ago. August Fagerstrom uh, was working in, I think, it, what is essentially like a kind of a liaison-type position between you know front office and coaching staff. And I know that, uh, I mean, he's told me, I don't think this is, uh, I'm telling tales out of school when I say that a lot of the work that he does now for the Brewers is actually kind of similar to what he did at Fangraphs, which is um, maybe taking some sophisticated concepts and figuring out what's relatable about them, right, and bringing them to mm-hmm. to people who essentially to make those ideas actionable. Um, and I know that that was a focus of you, of you for you in your post, like with the minor league zones by level. You said, you know, I let my minor league players know that they were going to get pitches called strikes that. Uh, were not necessarily strikes, but not to necessarily react to that reality because things were going to be different um, in the upper minors and the majors. So that, those are it's cool to have those takeaways. But do you, do you sense like maybe what positions that exist now or could could exist in your future might be most interesting to you, or you feel like would would best complement your talents, or your talents would best complement those positions? Yeah, I think that would certainly be a a cool role mm-hmm. to have to be some sort of bridge. Mm-hmm. And application between the on-field and the the realm of the analytics with you know, capital T, capital A, the analytics and you know the the on-field uh, component to to be involved. In, I think would be really fun. Yeah, from what I've seen, uh, you're uh, entirely qualified for that sort of thing. If for no other reason, I mean, beyond your skill, etc., your humility and your desire to learn more uh, is very cool. It's been a lot of fun working with you, and uh, we have your fourth post coming out very soon. Uh, by the time this episode is available, it will be available. That post will be available to the public as well. Uh, but uh, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure working with you, Nate Fryman. Oh, thank you, Carson. Thank you for having me. This has been a really cool experience for for me. And yeah, again, don't understand I, I how happy you working. How, <laughs> I don't understand it. 
<laughs> I don't understand. My whole world order is inverted, but um, I'm glad you're happy. I'm not upset about that. Yep. Yeah. No, I, I am. I, I've, I've really enjoyed this. All right. Hey, uh, Nate Fryman, you have fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs. Thank you very much. Thank you, Carson. I, I Again, thank you for having me. That is ex-major leaguer and uh, current student in the world of baseball ideas, Nate Fryman. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>